I want you to take out your phones and text them, do you believe Pluto is a planet? University 101, The Invention and Consequences of Race, is back in session, and students are listening to Duke Professor of Cultural Anthropology Lee Baker telling them about what he calls the anthropology of race. And uh, look at sort of some of the ironies between race, racism, and democracy, particularly in sort of colonial, or former colonial um, countries that believe in equality, believe in justice, and believe in like freedom, but consistently articulate inequality, lack of freedom, and, and the like. And just kind of as an anthropologist looking at those contradictions, you can explain a lot about what is going on in a particular culture. So that's kind of Baker explains what a social construct is, like, for example, whether Pluto is a planet. Pluto is an object zipping through space with mass and trajectory and velocity. That's just fact. But whether it's a planet, like versus an asteroid or a meteor or something else, that's invented. A planet is an invented notion, like race. Or, say, civilization. European settlers deemed both African slaves and Native Americans uncivilized, which allowed the settlers basically to do anything they liked with them. Native Americans fought that label, and one way they tried to demonstrate their civilization their argument that we are civilized, and they call themselves the five civilized tribes, is they had a constitution, they were Christians, and they had slaves. So we're as assimilated as anyone we should stay. If you can believe it, the European settlers didn't think the Native American civilization meant they ought to be able to remain in their southeastern homelands. And they were like, no, it's better for you. You're not, you savages. Um, it's better for you to be moved. So that was, again, the rationalization. Both with slavery and Indian removal, there was this rationalization that because you're savages, being in contact with white people for slaves lifts you up, and being removed from white people lets you just do your thing if you're Native Americans. Useful things, these social constructs. But social constructs also have to be um, durable and believable, right? And when I say durable, it's, it's not just a fad or something went viral one time. It has to be sort of grounded in history and there has to be sort of a genealogy to it. It has to be rooted in something. But defining civilization gets into the weeds and Pluto is kind of distant. To further clarify a social construct, Professor Baker stays in the sky but shifts to something much more ordinary than Pluto. This is one of my favorite examples because even though we know it's not true. We still believe. When you are walking on the beach and you're taking a picture for your Facebook page, you're not saying, this is us as the earth turns and goes into the shadow of the earth. People just say it's the sunset and they believe it's the sunset. And you're not doing the third, fourth leap saying, well, the sun isn't really setting, the earth is turning. But this is a great example of it. Like, you know it's not setting, but it kind of looks like it's setting, so you're just going to let, say, sunset, and it's part of the culture, right? So that is not, that this is a type of social construct, and I think that's a, a, a beautiful example of it, because we all do it. Even the sunset is a social construct. Helps put race into perspective. Hi, you're listening to The Race Course, a 
podcast from Duke Magazine. I'm senior writer Scott Hewler, and we sat in all term on University 101, The Invention and Consequences of Race, the class Duke created as part of its commitment to anti-racism. This is episode two, where we address what we learned in episode one. Let me ask, how many of you, and, and be, be honest now, thought of race as invented, as made up, before you saw the title of this course? How many of you thought of it as something that was made up? How many people said invention? Did they invent that? I thought it was real. But okay, if race was invented, if it's a social construct, as Professor Baker says, well, why does everyone pay so much attention to something we just made up? Just because it's socially constructed doesn't mean that it's not real, right? It has real-life consequences, life-and-death consequences uh, that are very much real. And so uh, we also need to think about the specificity of the local and the historical context, the spatial context, in which race is mobilized to do its thing ideologically. That's Amy Kwan, associate professor in the Department of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies and one of the four co-conveners of the course. And her point was simple. We pay attention to race because people believe in it and because it accomplishes something some people wanted to accomplish. Listen to Gunther Peck, associate professor of history and public policy, who lectured a couple weeks after Baker. If we think about the way we simultaneously deconstruct race. It's a social construct. It has a history. It's malleable. We get that. And then ratify its power to explain events. Give an example. A good friend said about a year ago, George Floyd was killed because he had black skin. He was not killed because he had black skin. I would strongly dispute that. He was killed because of a systemic racist policy and because a racist person killed him. That is, George Floyd's problem wasn't that he had black skin. His problem was that racist people believe the things racists claim about people with black skin. People believe in that social construct of race, and they act on those beliefs. Not skin color, racism. Where Baker addressed the nature of social constructs, Peck talked about how the social construct of race affected things like people's actions. Personal, like the racist murder of George Floyd, and political, like U.S. immigration policy. Peck spoke on what he called immigrant whiteness. And he focused, again, not on skin color, but on the series of invented beliefs that people assign to it. Why does that matter? If you think that skin color itself authorizes race and racism, you're naturalizing racism. You're saying that, in effect, the skin color is what creates the habits of mind and thought and the practices that are unjust, that are connected to racism. And that is understandable because, in fact, that is the world we live in, that there are consequences to skin color. And I would challenge you right that when you think about the origins of race, and especially immigrant whiteness, that it was not lightly complected skin that creates immigrant whiteness. For example, one immigrant group that had a hard time being treated as white in the United States 
was Finnish people. The fairest-skinned immigrants in U.S. history are probably the Finnish-American community, and they were not white by law in 1900. For blonde, hair, blue eyes, why would that have been? Census takers refused to put them in as white. And the reason being, they were farthest left of any immigrant group in U.S. history up to that point. They were syndicalists. They believed in one big union. They were communists, in effect, before the Russian Revolution. They were viewed as dangerous to this nation and to what its founding creed is. Therefore, they were not considered white, which meant they could not naturalize quite the same way. The United States government finding a way to treat the fairest-skinned people in the world as non-white helped clarify just how arbitrary both race and its consequences are. This led both Baker and Peck to ask not the what or how of race, but the why. Here's Baker. So I want you to think as I go through this lecture, what function does race have in a society that believes in equality, justice, freedom, and liberty, right? What function does it have? And some of these functions include managing population expansion, cheap land, and labor for the dominant group to stay on top economically, culturally, as well as politically. And then it reconciles persistent inequality with individualism, liberty, and justice for all. So it kind of keeps ideas of meritocracy, keeps ideas of democracy, and keeps ideas of American dream sort of alive and well through this sort of rationalization process. Race does work. It keeps the down races down and not only keeps the up race up, but tells it that it's up because it belongs there. Baker discussed how people have used the law to enforce racism. He laid out the case of Elizabeth Key, an enslaved biracial woman in the mid-1600s who successfully sued in Virginia colonial court for her own freedom and that of her son. Under British common law, the status of the father determined that of the child, and the Christianity of Key and her son also helped. You can guess the result. So the Virginia assembly got quick. By 1662, they had a law <laughs> that said children born to Negro women are either free or slave depending on their mother's status. The baptism of slaves as Christians does not alter their status as slaves, right? That's du- those two were directly in response to the key case. A hundred years later, in 1775, the notion of race had caught on. German physician and anthropologist Johann Blumenbach categorized the entire world into five seemingly scientific racial categories. And surprise! So he believed that the people from the Caucasus, and Georgia in particular, were the most beautiful people in the world. He gets credit for giving us the word Caucasian and equating it to white. Though they were based on the fiction of race, even the categories weren't the problem. The problem was the categories were hierarchical. It was an explicit hierarchical position which was very significant. And he also says this is the varieties of mankind according to the truth of nature. Now, he was the only one who could discern this, but nevertheless. With, naturally, the white race on top. Modern biologist and science historian Stephen Jay Gould, whom the class read for this discussion, argues the shift from a geographic to hierarchical order of human diversity must stand as one of the most fateful transitions in the history of Western science. For short of railroads and nuclear bombs has more practical impact, in this case, are most entirely negative upon our collective lives. That's a lot. 
Is that hyperbole? Is he a little over the top? Is he making the point? Or is that true? What He's do- not over the top. It's not hyperbole. It is true. Hierarchically ranking races in a seemingly scientific way has had devastating consequences. Because you do, you bring science in, but you also bring in state violence, power, all this bureaucracy, all this machinery, and really with force enforcing these hierarchies. So it is, you know, it was a big deal, but it took time to evolve. We used that case of um, the woman who fought for her freedom. And that one could have gone either way. A hundred years later, though, it's locked and loaded. We have hereditary slavery with ideas of inferiority. And then there's the point is simple. In the United States, at least by 1776, you've got big time hereditary slavery, ideas of inferiority, and the power, bureaucracy, and force to enforce it. So that's a pretty big difference in 100 years. Of course, once race is baked in, Racism develops as a tool of oppression. Baker described the gyrations the new country underwent to remove Native Americans from the South. You get slaves coming from the North down into cotton country and moving the Indians out of cotton country and the Indian country all at the same time. This was total disruption of families, of people from their lands. So that was very culturally disruptive, nor the same um, agriculture, whatever. And also for families, because so much of that selling them down the river or that domestic slavery was breaking up families. And it was used as a tool to oppress people. So if you did not comply, we will sell your daughter. And it was a tool of real misery and, and, and real violence um, against kinship. And so these two things in the 1830s I think works so much to bring race as we know it today. Just the total disregard for family structures, just selling pieces of people's families down the river to to be in the cotton kingdom, at the same time removing the Indians from prime cotton land. This is not an accident. This was coordinated. And in a subsequent class, Peck went into detail about how the nation used laws to resist immigrant groups it didn't like. It begins with Chinese exclusion in 1882. That's the first... Uh, one of the first exclusionary acts, the first time that we actually begin to have a border that excludes rather than welcomes or creates conditions for inclusion. Um, And that act authorizes a whole set of other types of detention uh, that come into being, the Angel Island in California, and then later, uh, right after that, in Ellis Island in North America. Much of the way that immigration exclusion occurs is around questions of public health, very relevant for the current moment. And how immigrant groups, though mistrusted and excluded, could nonetheless aspire to that socially constructed whiteness, and with it, a step up the cultural ladder. Whiteness isn't skin color, it's a status an immigrant can acquire. But then we see immigrant whiteness for what it is, which is an ideology and a political strategy that has been contested from its origins and not something that's authorized, naturalized by the color of your skin. There's no way to make sense of white supremacy in the United States without understanding some of those starting points. Expanding on that notion, 
Amy Kwan spent her lecture reminding the class that race and racism are not exclusively North American problems. I also want to, in this class, to try to broaden the conversation from a largely U.S. race uh, relations focus to a more global focus. And as you have seen in your er the earlier uh, lectures, even when we focus on the U.S., it's never just about the U.S. We talk about immigration, we talk about uh, biological science, uh, the development of eugenics and so forth. These are all global phenomena. And so I encourage you, not only in this class, but in uh, whatever you do in your other classes, your majors, um, you know, like your line of work and so forth, really try to think about crossing these divides and going across borders. To outline matters sharply. By 1900, 15% of Euro American power subjugated 85% of the world's people and territories, primarily in the Americas, Africa, and Asia. Wrap your head around that. 85% of the world were subjugated as colonies or informal colonies by this time. And this was a racial divide. There was a color line. White Euro-American power colonized every inhabited continent. And this was the making of the world divide that took four or five hundred years. So do you think it's just going to disappear in 1945, 1947 with independence movements? We're still living with these legacies. And with that legacy of colonization, Kwan notes, the United States has scrupulously avoided the word, but by the late 1800s, it was an empire. At the same time, Japan, the other late arrival to world colonialism, was also ramping up its efforts. So by this time, imperialism and the word colony, the C word, was actually uh, becoming taboo. And so we tried to avoid the C word. And so uh, this idea of an anti-colonial imperialism was the, the new name of the game. But if you look at the various territories, so we call them territories instead of colonies, the different areas that we um, went into, Hawaii, uh, the native lands, Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, American Samoa, U.S. Virgin Islands, all of this new territory was acquired uh, around the same time that Japan was also expanding. But in fact, during the time, the contemporaneously in the 1890s, when America was expanding its territories, it was actually obvious to everyone what, what uh, it was doing, but in history, we actually have forgotten that simil similar legacy. And that reminds people studying American racism that you can't focus just on United States racism against black people, or Irish or Italian or Chinese immigrants, or for that matter, those Finns. All those laws, all those rules, they all fit together. So it's really important for us to think about these histories in a triangulated and connected way, uh, rather than thinking about what happened to one group of people versus another and another as a separate history, which is oftentimes how we're, we're taught these histories. They're connected, of course, by the notion that European Americans, white people, are better. Kwan showed a political cartoon of Uncle Sam forcing highly racialized children representing island nations like Cuba and the Philippines to read a book on self-government. This idea that these other people in other territories uh, of different color, different race, were less civilized uh, than you. Now children, 
You've got to learn these lessons whether you want to or not. Race was arbitrarily created and arbitrarily used by the white power structure to justify whatever it wanted to do. When the railroads needed labor, Chinese immigrants were good. When it came time for citizenship, not so much. The race of immigrants, like all race, is a shifting, changing thing. So this uh, idea of a reversible and interchangeable uh, relation to the nation state, this uh, place of in-betweenness, of never fully belonging, and always being tagged as perpetual foreigners. Uh, and so, depending on our foreign policy of the moment, um, we, all, we think about the good Asian versus the bad Asian, and then you become the good Asian again. And you see this, uh, it's not just a fixed place. Uh, once you, be, uh, once you uh, attain your citizenship and your sense of belonging, it's a done deal. No, it's actually a constant uh, battle. As Professor Kwan finished her lecture, one student raised a question. One of the reasons I took this class was just obviously to learn more about the construction of race, but more specifically how Because the class took place in a lecture hall with students masked and distanced, student questions and comments often came out like that, muffled and hard to hear. As it happens, that question came from senior Elizabeth Lociavo, who had expressed the same question to me earlier. I have done a lot of like investigative work through creative projects in the past, through my major and through extracurriculars that have like kind of looked at Duke's historical relationship with race, looking at like work from Local 77, like the Workers Union. Uh, I did a creative project on Julian Abel last semester, for ex example and just the shortcomings that Duke has had in it, addressing racism on campus. And so the main reason for taking this class was I really wanted to like see how well <laughs> or how thoroughly Duke was kind of like interrogating this. It's much different, I think, to talk about like race in the abstract and like in an academic sense, but to actually like analyze what have the, like our institutions like roles been in upholding this social construct in a discriminatory way you know um, and like to this day the ways that we still do the large room the masks and the separation could make such discussion difficult but Quan encouraged that line of thought first reminding Lociavo that the class was a first try uh, this is our first iteration and you guys are uh, the pioneers, basically, uh, coming uh, on this journey with us. And as I said, you know, not all of us agree on the content of the course and, and who's going to, you know, be lecturing and, and, and the topics and the disciplines and so forth. And so, you know, um, my hope is that this is just one of many. This is not a one and done. And also, as you're taking the, this class and listening to some of the lectures, ask yourself, what about this history? What about the, the background have I known about? And what about this history? Is it completely new to me? You know, as student at Duke University, uh, after a lifetime of an uh, uh, education system. And so I hope that will guide you in thinking about pursuing other knowledges and other connections and other ways of forming solidarity. Professor Baker mentioned that we are a historically white college and university. We often think about HBCUs, uh, historically black colleges and universities, but we actually don't name the whiteness of the institutions that historically have been predominantly white, and in some cases still are. As I said, my colleagues, I am um, the majority, 85% uh, are white men. So um, we are definitely uh, 
having these uh, issues and debating them on a, on a campus level. And so I would encourage you to also think about the place of the university and the solidarity movements and community building uh, across aisles. So just don't hang out with the people that you know, look like you. Make an effort, because this has been done before. Uh, those, a lot of those movements actually, uh, some of them uh, ended up having success, but many of them failed. Um, and often through great uh, state violence. But I, I want to encourage you to think about this particular moment in the post-George Floyd moment uh, and with Black Lives Matter going viral again globally and the reckoning of history uh, of which this, his, this class is uh, a part for you to really take an active role in pushing this conversation forward. Regarding pushing the conversation forward. The four co-convening professors had discussed whether the class ought to have discussion sessions to facilitate the conversations that Quan thought ought to happen. Quan had been in favor of such sessions, but the group had decided against them. I would have loved to have a discussion section, you know. Um, I think we have a lot of cooks in this kitchen. There are uh, some differing debates about whether that would be, you know, good for a course like this or not, who would actually... Um, you know, lead those discussion sections. Some of the faculty felt that, you know, um, some of graduate students might not be uh, as well trained or equipped to deal with some of these sensitive topics. Others of us think that, you know, these are precisely the reasons why we do have to have these small group discussions and so forth. And, you know, you can train uh, graduate students along the way and so forth. Professor Kerry Haney disagrees. So the difficulty with discussion sessions, and I was one of the ones who was uh, opposed to that, He describes teaching lecture courses with discussion sessions led by teaching assistants, but those were established courses whose TAs had taken similar courses and could easily lead students through the material. In this class, the material was new, TAs were untrained, and the material itself could be not only challenging, but upsetting. You know, you have to have TAs who are competent to lead a discussion section, or it's not much use to have session sessions. And that we couldn't, certainly not in the amount of time we had, uh, I thought, filled some sections where we had TAs who were competent enough uh, to, to lead discussion sessions. And the other complication, right, we didn't know what the guest speakers were going to, to say, right? We knew we had their readings, and that's one thing, but then their lectures could be things they bring up from the readings or different things they would bring in, and most have brought things other than the readings to their lectures. And uh, having TAs who, again, not specialists, uh, to contend with that in discussions such as I thought was uh, not a good pedagogical way to proceed. But uh, it's possible with some lead time uh, and getting a sense we could have TAs who were trained and uh, we worked with them for some period of time to get up to speed what we could do. Understandable. But the students, the students wanted to talk. Um, I would say yes, and that's just because everybody's coming with different backgrounds. So I'm like a military brat. So when we were talking about like military conquest and the effect that the military's had on race, that was something that I would have loved to be able to talk more about and like learn from other people's perspectives. So in it's in situations where you have like a very specific or personal view on some of these topics, it's kind of disappointing that we don't get to talk about it with one another. But being able to chat with each other in class or after class or um, chatting with professors can kind of help fill that 
that area, but I'm hoping that in the future as the course progresses and that we stick with that and we can open it up to more discussion and just, I think when we do open to discussions though, the, the difficulty is going to be making sure every, the conversation is staying respectful and that we're still learning from one another while we're talking about such sensitive issues and, and conversations. That's freshman Eliza Moore. Freshman Joshua Pickett felt the same. Yeah, I definitely think uh, discussion would be good. Based off of what she said, like uh, learning from uh, different people and their different backgrounds and stuff like that. Uh, and also being able to like kind of break down the material because I definitely find the material to be a little, yeah, dense sometimes. <laughs> I thought the same. So, um, yeah, I think a discussion would be, uh, would be a good idea for sure. Uh, um, I definitely find it helpful in my psych class, so I think it would be good in here too. Pickett recognized that discussion could yield not just uncomfortable, but even offensive comments. But he thought that would actually be helpful. I think it might be a proper way to like confront it for sure. Um, like, I guess, yeah, it can be sometimes like a tough topic to discuss and can be controversial, but uh, I think there's a way t- that uh, can be confronted like with more, uh, like, I guess, I, I guess an educated response really, just to correct somebody. I mean, not coming at them, but just kind of like coming lightly at them and telling them this or that, like, uh, maybe you should have said this this way or just uh, kind of doing that in a, a way where they can understand for sure. And I also think that we're like bound to come into contact with those types of people throughout our journey at Duke just because it is just different identities all coming together. And so I think that like being able to kind of, at least for me as like a first year, being it, if I was in a discussion and that did come up, I think it would actually be very helpful to kind of learn how to handle those situations and more of like a controlled setting with maybe, you know, we have an adult present, or I guess we're all adults, but I still feel like a kid, where we have like a a professor to kind of help guide, you know, how we handle that versus just kind of being, I don't know, like the dining hall and someone says that and you're just like, I don't know what to say to this. So I think, yeah, exactly. That was freshman Sonia Green. Junior Quinn Smith agreed. Yeah, I think it would be easier to deal with those cases of microaggressions in discussion because I remember there was a time where one student asked a question that essentially compared uh, colorblind racism to sock preference and then because we were to sock preference you pick the socks that you want to wear and it's not like that's just how you want it like like dating preferences yeah yeah and sorry no no you're good but because it was a lecture and there like we we couldn't we kind of discuss it. Um, so I, I think that would have been a lot easier to confront in a discussion section. And also, I agree that in some ways, I feel like we're there's an elephant in the room we're not addressing, and that's Duke's active participation in being a residential school and being built by slave labor and um, those denied access to basic civil liberties. And if we had a discussion section we might be able to sort of steer the course content a little bit more. And apply it and to do. Yeah. Smith introduced himself as a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation. Yeah. Um, recently, the Duke Native American Student Alliance has been trying to advocate for more resources for Native students because Duke was a residential school. And so um, this class, I think, gives me the tools necessary to analyze uh, the power relationships and these inequities. And um, like this class we had today, um, you can see these 
trends play out in many parts of the world and throughout history. Lo Schiavo was the student who would have liked to delve more deeply into Duke power relationships. Specifically, I like uh, took a really awesome um, house course run by the uh, um, Mitchell White House, which is the like black living and learning community on campus. That was last fall. Two students like really dug deep into the um, history of Duke and racism. Um, so we learned about like labor unions, about the Allen Building takeover, etc. Um, and so I really wanted um, to see how this course would like take on that history. I'm disappointed that it's not, um, but I hope that I think this is a good foundation for like future iterations of the course to tackle that history. A good foundation for sure. And Haney feels that's exactly the point. And what I thought would happen, and I think it's the best way to approach it, is to do what we do as academics, is do uh, evidence-based course. And then when you start talking about an allegory takeover, now you have a context which, which when you can better understand those kinds of events or to better discuss those kinds of events. But without knowing some basic foundational facts and events about race and U.S. history and politics and science, uh, you can't have, I think, uh, you know, very good productive conversations about these sticky issues that come up or like a takeover or a renaming of a building. It's what we do as academics, uh, at least from the social science perspective. And I think that's what you do. And then let people look at facts and information and draw their own conclusions or enter into debate, having something to debate rather than, you know, uh, issues that become political without any foundation. So so I, I'm happy that the course has turned out that way. And, uh, Pickett agreed. I, like coming in, I expected to learn more about uh, like black history, but to learn more about like other cultures and how their races were affected and their cultures are affected is definitely interesting. And uh, how some of them like connect together, uh, I, I found very interesting, so. Graduate student Adrian Jones wondered whether concerns about fraught conversations in discussion groups were justified, given that any student taking this course had consciously opted in. Like certainly there are concerning things that may be happening um, or that could happen, but I would also say we might be experiencing some election, some selection effects too. I think people who chose to take this class did so because they're interested in being here and they're interested in learning. So I think that um, kind of sharing and um, communal opportunity that you all would like to have really could be a great space for you to connect with one another. In fact, Jones felt she could have been learning more as a graduate student had she had the chance to shepherd students through those discussions. She enjoyed reading their written work. But for someone like me, who aspires to be a professor one day, I'm also thinking about strategies to actually implement this information into courses that I teach. The best ways to engage with students, how to really push their kind of critical thinking and their critical analysis and their writing skills. Um, so I'm learning just as much from the students as they are from us and, and learning quite a lot about how to be in the classroom and the type of teacher I would like to be. The students asked about the material, talked among themselves, moving along both their academic understanding of race and their capacity to discuss it. Their discussions with me became almost a de facto discussion session, and their professors heard them. The second iteration of the course, running in fall 2022, meets bi-weekly, once for lecture, once for discussion. Next week on The Race Course. The students have discussed why they took this course. We take a moment to hear from professors. And so, um, honestly, I, I 
part of why I agreed to join on is I don't think it should only be, you know, um, people of color that say studying race is important. That's next episode of The Race Course from Duke Magazine.